Welcome, everyone. You're listening to Truth in Christ Radio, a Bible teaching radio ministry of Calvary Chapel of Rochester with Senior Pastor Rob Kellogg. But notice that it says he was not only the line of the tribe of Judah who was able to open the scroll, but he was also the root of David. A root speaks of something that's the beginning. It speaks as, uh, like a, for those of you who garden, you know that the, you know, there, there's, a, there's a root. You put a, something in the ground and it grows. And when you cut it, there's a, there, there's, a, there's a stump there. And what does it say in Isaiah 11? It says, there shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse. David's father was named Jesse. Welcome, everyone, to Truth in Christ Radio. Today, our scripture says, Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah. One of the elders rescued John from his grief, showing him the one who has prevailed to open the scroll. This one was the great figure of Old Testament prophecy, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. The lion is a fitting image of our Messiah. Number one, for the excellency of his strength. Number two, for his heroic spirit. Number three, for his principality. The lion is the king of the beasts. And number four, for his vigilance. The lion sleeps with open eyes. Now let's join Pastor Rob with today's message. Revelation chapter 5. Over the, it's, it's been two weeks since we've gotten into the book of Revelation. We started the, first, or the fifth chapter on the 21st of June, which was Father's Day. And so I'm looking forward to finishing chapter 5 today. And uh, these two chapters, uh, 4 and 5, are really interesting because if you remember when we first started, we looked at the book of Revelation and we covered the seven churches of Revelation. And, and that really covers the church age of which we are still a part. And the church age is something that is happening now and will continue until the rapture of the church. And we talked a lot about that uh, the last several weeks, uh, about the church being removed before this period of time. The Bible calls the Great Tribulation. It also calls it Daniel's 70th week or Jacob's trouble. And it's a time where God is going to pour out his wrath upon a world that has rejected his only means of salvation, Jesus Christ. See, the thing that we struggle with is that God is a God of love, and he certainly is. But we have to understand that if he is a perfect God of love, it also stands to reason that he must punish sin. Now, aren't you glad that your sin has been paid for on the cross by Jesus Christ? That is true, and that is a done deal. He, he did it once and for all, and our faith in him sets the slate clean. If we confess our sin, what does the Bible say, the, pro, the promise? He will be faithful to forgive us and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. And so it's important that we understand that. It's important that we understand that. But we also know that God is a God of justice, and that there is coming a time where God will pour out his wrath. 
And that time is yet future to us. And if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, you will not see God's wrath. Because he already, for you, Christian, he's already taken that wrath out upon his son. But when we are removed from the earth, God is going to deal with the world. He's going to deal with Israel again. And he will pour out his wrath upon a world that has rejected him. The Bible says in 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 9 that God has not appointed us, the church, to wrath, but to obtain salvation by our Lord Jesus Christ. Many other passages, many other um, areas in the scripture where God always removes his faithful remnant before he brings judgment. That, that's the overall timbre of the, of the entire Bible, redemption. And redemption is more than just being saved from our sins and going to heaven. Redemption is even when God pours out his judgment, he removes his remnant first. What good father, what good bridegroom would allow his bride to be trounced through the muck and the mire and the awful, horrid display of God's wrath on the earth? Does anybody think that that's true, that God would allow such a thing? I don't believe it for a minute, because the Bible is very clear about these things. And in fact, the more you read it, the more you realize that that is the nature of God. That's one thing you can rest in. That's one thing you can take to the bank, and you can rest your head on your pillow at night. Because he's a good, good father, we sang it, right? And so uh, we looked at those letters to the seven churches, and that was basically what was happening on, on the earth at that time. And then chapters 4 and 5, which we're going to finish today, is uh, the scene changes completely, and now we're in heaven. And we see this heavenly vision, if you will, of John being caught up as a representative of the church in the rapture, in a sense. God showing him what the things that are coming after these things. Remember that metatauta? After these things, it says in the first verse of chapter 4, that he rose to heaven and God showed him things yet to come. And he wrote them down for our edification, for our encouragement. And I love the fact that God did that because we're living in a time of unprecedented evil, unprecedented deception. And I love the fact that God says, you don't need to worry. I've shown you the big picture. Does that give you comfort in your soul? The fact that he shows you the big picture, to me, it does. If he didn't show us anything, I'd be very nervous right now. I'd be very nervous, but he's shown us. So Christian, rest. If you believe in, in Jesus, you can rest. You can sit in your hammock with your glass of iced tea on a sunny day when the breeze is flowing about 74 degrees <laughs> under the shade tree of a big oak tree in your backyard you can rest, Christian. Rest from your fears of the future. God's got a hold of this. He's got a handle on everything. He knows exactly what's happening, and everything is going right along his timetable. We don't like it, and I don't like it, to be honest with you. We're not supposed to like it. If we have the very nature of Jesus within us, we, like he, hate sin. We hate evil. We hate things going the way they're going and the things that we're seeing. And that's very natural. It's very normal. But what do you do with that? What do you do with that? Maybe angst or maybe even fear. What do you do with that? I would encourage you to take it to your, take it to your knees and bring it before the Lord and trust him. Trust him and rest in him. There's no greater place to be than at the feet of Jesus. Just like Mary. Remember Mary and Martha? Oh, Martha, you've encumbered by many things, but Mary has done that thing which is needful. Needful. 
And that's what we need to do. I'd encourage you more than watching the news, more than being caught up on Facebook and Twitter and all that stuff, spend more time in the Word of God. Spend more time in prayer. Spend more time going for walks with your family. Spend more time being with those that you love. Play Monopoly like we did yesterday. Spend time together. We've learned some lessons from this whole thing, haven't we? We're going through. But this vision now in chapter 4 and 5 is completely in heaven. It's about the heavenly scene after the church is removed from the earth. And what, is, what do we see there? We see the throne, and we see those four living creatures. We see the 24 elders surrounding this throne. We see this heavenly scene that is painted for us in the first chapter, and certainly in chapters 4 and 5. We see who is there. And we see worship, and they're worshiping one. You know, it's an interesting thing that God is on the throne. God the Father, you cannot see God the Father. He is a spirit. No one has seen God and lived. No one has seen him in his essence as a spirit and lived. But yet, people seen Jesus Christ on the earth, didn't they? And yet, who is the one? God the Father is so secure in himself. He has given all power and all authority to his son. And as we look at this scene this morning, we're going to see Jesus being at the center, this lamb as it was slain, being in the center of it all. And God the Father not having a problem with it at all because he is equal with God the Father. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit, the three in one, the Trinity. We can't completely understand it, but three persons in the Godhead. It's one God, but three persons. And so we see this scene of them exalting Jesus Christ. And you know, the title of this morning's message is Worthy is the Lamb. Worthy is the Lamb. You know, it's been said that if you look at a person's life long enough, you can tell really what they hold as valuable, what they deem as worthy. Just watch them. Watch the things that they say. Watch the things that they buy. What do they spend more time talking about? You can find and you can discern what is really valuable to someone. What is worthy? What is worthy? And yet, worthy is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Worthy is He. Jesus Christ is worthy. You know, it's interesting, in the New Oxford American Dictionary, it has this definition of worthy. It literally means having or showing the qualities or abilities that merit recognition in a a specified way. It's deserving effort, attention, or respect. And what are some of the things that our culture holds or values or calls worthy? And the answer to that question says a lot about us as a people, as a culture, doesn't it? What are some of the things that are valued or deemed worthy in our culture? You know, I think if we, not necessarily us in this room, but if you did a, if you looked over it with a a broad paintbrush, the United States of America, what would they think is most valuable? The real truth, not what they say so much, but by where they spend most of their time, they spend most of their money, their attention. What is it? It's actors, famous actors, famous actresses, rock stars, sports celebrities, the rich and the famous, those who are gifted. You know, we tend to value uh, those things. We deem worthy those who are physically attractive. I'm just being honest. In, In our culture, that's what it is. This is what they find worthy. They look at the outward attraction. They look at the physical beauty. They value those who are talented or gifted in any subject, any vocation. They value those who are well-educated and those certainly that are wealth, wealthy. And all of these things, they are gifts from God. 
They are either gifts that God has given or that he's allowed by his grace. I can't, you know, when I was born, I wasn't able to determine whether I'd be a physically attractive person or not. You know, I didn't have control over that. Unless you live in Hollywood. (laughs) Then you can go to a doctor and you can get attractive. But that's not really attractive, is it? But see, we can't even boast in those things. So what do we hold worthy? What do we deem valuable? We cannot boast even in the things that we have been given. You know, I love what it says in 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 7. Paul said to them, For who makes you differ from one another, and what do you have that you did not first receive? Now, if you, you did indeed receive it, why do you boast as if you had not received it? And yet that is exactly what we as a culture do. We boast in those things. More often than not, these things are, 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 are boasted about. But the Bible says, worthy is the lamb. And the word worthy in the original Greek, it's a wonderful word. It means basically the same, deserving. It means someone who is deserving, someone who is due reward, one who has merited something. And we see it four times in this chapter alone. We see it in the very second verse of Revelation 5, verse 2. It says, Then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and loose its seals? In the fifth chapter, in the fourth verse, it says, John says, So I wept much because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. In Revelation 5, verse 9, which we're going to look at today, and they sang a new song, the 24 elders and the four living creatures. They sang a new song saying, You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seal. Speaking of Jesus Christ. And certainly in the twelfth verse, the angels, the living creatures... And the elders all sang with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. Every tribe and tongue and nation of people. See, when we compare what we see on this earth with our own eyes and then we consider the one who has created all things, the only one who can take the punishment and redeem us, anything else, everything else is very short in comparison. There is no one like Jesus. We sang it this morning. There is none like you. There is truly none like him. Everybody smile. There's none like him. Your faith is not in vain. Your faith is not in vain. You serve the living Christ. And the Lamb, Jesus Christ, is the one who is the subject of Revelation. Let's read through the first seven verses quickly, and then we're going to get into verses 8 through 14. Notice it says, And I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne, this is God the Father, a scroll written inside and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And then I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to loose its seals? And notice, And no one in heaven or on the earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look at it. And John says, I wept much. He convulsively wept. This wasn't a tear in the eye. No, this was a very remorseful cry. He wept because no one was found worthy to open and read the scroll or to look at it. But notice verse 5, but one of the elders said to me, don't weep. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has prevailed to open the scroll and to loose its seven seals. This is the only place in Revelation where Jesus is spoken of as a lamb. The only place, or I'm sorry, as a lion, spoken of as a lion, excuse me. 
<laughs> the only let me repeat that again. We'll edit that. No, just kidding. The only place in Revelation where Jesus is spoken of as a lion, and it all goes back to Genesis 49. Remember when Jacob was blessing his sons? He was prophesying over them right before he passed from the scene in Egypt. You remember what he said to, the, to the Judah? He said, Judah is a lion's whelp. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He bows down. He lies down as a lion. And as a lion, who shall rouse him? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. And there's more to that. You can read verses 9 through 11, but basically it speaks of Judah being uh, like a lion. And certainly who came from the line of Judah? Certainly it was David and, and, and David who, who ultimately came, Jesus Christ. He came through the line of Judah. So Jesus is the lion of the tribe of Judah. And I love what it says in 1 Kings chapter 10, Beginning in verse 19, it even talks of Solomon's throne room. In Solomon's throne room, there were, there were, um, there were six steps ascending up to his throne. On each side of those six steps were lions. Lions. Symbolizing Judah. Symbolizing the lion of the tribe of Judah. Ultimately, finding its fullest expression in Jesus Christ. But notice that it says he was not only the lion of the tribe of Judah who was able to open the scroll, but he was also the root of David. A root speaks of something that's the beginning. It speaks as, uh, like a, well, for those of you who garden, you know that the, you know, there, there's, a, there's a root. You put a, a, something in the ground and it grows. And when you cut it, there's a, there, there's, a, there's a stump there. And what does it say in Isaiah 11? It says, there shall come forth a rod from the stem of Jesse. David's father was named Jesse. And remember, Isaiah is speaking 700 years prior to Jesse even being born, at least. And he says, there shall come forth a rod from the stem, from the root of Jesse, and a branch shall grow out of his roots. What is that speaking of? Whom is that speaking of? It's speaking of Jesus Christ. Speaking of Jesus Christ. And what does Jesus say? At the very end of the book of Revelation, in chapter 22, verse 16, he says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. And that's what we're doing today. That's what we've been doing, is been testifying these things to the churches. He says, I am the root and the offspring of David. I am the root and the offspring of David, the bright and morning star. Going on in verse 6, it says, And I look, John says, and behold, in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, in the midst of the elders, stood a lamb as though it had been slain, having seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. You know, when you look at this word midst, it literally means in the middle. In the middle of this heavenly scene. Who is there? Jesus. He is the center he had to be the center of everything in our lives. When Jesus is the center of your life, what is there? There is peace, isn't there? It doesn't mean that it's not going to be without troubles, but you're going to have a peace, an inward peace that nobody can understand. While the world is falling apart all around you, you can be there with that silly smile on your face, and people look at you like a cat testing new eyes. What? Why aren't you devastated? You just lost your job. You just lost your Bugatti in a crash. How can you smile? And yet we can, because he is the center. So 
in the midst of the throne and of the four living creatures, Jesus is and should be preeminent in all things. You know, and there's something about the name of Jesus that provokes a response. You know it because when you mention his name, things change. When you mention, some, when you mention the name of Jesus, that name has power. There's no name like it in all the universe. You can say Buddha, you can say Allah, you can say anything. But boy, once you say Jesus, boy, the demons start to shriek. And you know that because people, even in their own flesh, they start to get really uncomfortable. Because why? Because they're controlled by the Spirit of God? No, because they are controlled by the enemy of their souls. They may not be demon-possessed, but I can tell you, when you mention the name of Jesus to a person who does not have the Spirit of God in them, there is immediate conviction. And it provokes a response. They'll either be reverent or they will be blasphemous. There's very little in between. But there is power in his name. What does it say in Colossians 1? This is one of my favorite verses in all the Bible. In verse 17 of Colossians chapter 1, it says, He, Jesus, is before all things, and in him all things consist, and he is the head of the body, the church. The Pope is not the head of the church. Chuck Smith was not the head of the church. Billy Graham was not the head of the church. No one is the head of the church except for Jesus Christ. It says it right here. He is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things, what? He might have, what? The preeminence. The preeminence. He is to be the center. And he is, even in this heavenly vision that we're seeing here, that is real, by the way. Did you know that what we're reading here is not just some kind of allegory? No, this is the reality of heaven When you die, Christian, you are going to see this place until God raptures your body and your body is reunited with a new body or your spirit and your soul is reunited. You are going to see this place and we will see this place for at least seven years. So get used to this scene because you're going to see it and it'll probably seem like a moment, honestly, because a thousand years is like one day and one day is is a thousand years. So we could be up there and have a marriage supper of the lamb and seven years could be finished and then it's time to go back to earth. We come back with him in his glorious second coming. But get used to this scene. Read it. Be encouraged by it. So, and notice that it says in verse 6 there that it was a lamb as though it had been slain. And to the Jews, to the Jewish people, they would see this and it would immediately bring upon them the idea of the Passover lamb that was recorded for us in Exodus 12. Remember when God brought them out of Egypt, he told them to sacrifice a lamb that night. And anyone who was in the house where the blood was put on the lintel and the side, side posts of the door, anybody who was inside would be spared, they would be saved, but anyone outside side, any of the firstborn will be killed. And so obedience, again, right? So a lamb as though it had been slain. Jesus is the Passover lamb, and he will bear the scars that he incurred on the earth for eternity. We will see those wounds in his hands for eternity. Can you imagine that? A million years goes by in his presence, and we'll stand there, and we'll look at him. and He'll raise his hands, and we'll still see the the scars in here will see, still see the scar in his side and his feet, and it'll be a re- reminder. At that point, it won't be remorseful, but we'll, we'll be in gratitude. We will look at him and we'll say, Lord, if it hadn't been for you, I'd be in hell. It's a good thing to be afraid of hell. I was afraid of hell, and you know, fear of hell brought me to Christ. <laughs> 
Don't ever be afraid to talk to people about hell because hell is real. And no one spoke about hell more in the Bible than Jesus. You can look at it yourself. He spoke about hell quite a bit and eternal judgment. It is real. It's not his will that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Isn't that what it says in 2 Peter 3, verse 9? It is not his will that any should perish. Actually, it's a wrong verse, but you get my point. It's not his will that any should perish, but whereas a lion speaks of strength, you know, when it talks. I'm sorry, that's all the time we have for today, but please join us next time as Pastor Rob continues our journey through the book of Revelation. Calvary Chapel of Rochester is located at 2503 Browncroft Boulevard, Rochester, New York, 14625. You can reach us at our church office between 9 a.m. and 4 p.m. Monday through Friday at area code 585-586-3140. If you would like to have an audio CD of today's message mailed to you in its unedited form, simply mention today's date when contacting our church office. You can also contact us via the web by logging on to www.calvaryrochester.com. There you will be able to access a number of useful things, such as information concerning our beliefs, our ministries, contact information, our location, service times, and much more. You can also download or listen to the radio and sanctuary messages free of charge from the teachings link at the top of the page. To listen to Calvary Chapel of Rochester Sanctuary messages or Truth in Christ Radio on your mobile device, just subscribe to both through Google Play and Apple Podcast. You may also join us on Sundays and Thursdays through live streaming of our services and Bible studies. Just click on the online services link. We're so glad that you could join us today. And if there is any way that we can bless you in your walk with Jesus Christ, please don't hesitate to call our church office. Remember, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And for this cause, I have come into the world that I should bear witness unto the truth. Everyone who is of the truth hears my voice. May God bless you in abundance today as you walk with him. And until next time, this has been Truth in Christ.